So I wanted to start the year with a series on the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to start till next week. Initially, I wanted to start this week. Uh, cut that out. So I, I was going to start this week, and it just didn't quite feel right. It just didn't quite feel right. It seemed like, you know, we're beginning this new year, and I wanted to be able to focus on something intently on the newness of the year and, and our movement into the new year. One of the wonderful things this morning is that we'll be sharing the Lord's Supper. Is there a more fitting way to begin our Sunday worship services in 2024 than in sharing in the Supper? And so that's one aspect of it. But I was casting about in my mind. I was praying. I was thinking, you know, what, what really would the Lord have me say this Sunday, the first Sunday of 2024? And then it came to me. It came to me in an email. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound as spiritual as it might, but it came to me in an email. In fact, it came to me in an email from Elizabeth Oates. Elizabeth is one of our ministers here on staff, and she just spoke a few minutes ago talking about the women's retreat that's coming up. And she sent out her e-newsletter, The Well, which she does periodically, and it always includes a devotional that she's written, and they're always worth reading. And this one included an interesting statement. She talks about how we're all making resolutions for the new year. Now, I know some of us don't, but that's only because we haven't kept them for 30 years and we gave up. But we all, we all think about making New Year's resolutions, and that's good. I make them every year. I gave up for about 10 years, but I'm back. I'm back. The triumph of hope over experience. <laughs> but she points out how in making these New Year's resolutions, we're often trying to, you know, really perfect ourselves and perfect our lives. And she says this. This is so good. Maybe the purpose of the new year isn't to do better, to be better, to be the best version of ourselves. Maybe the reason for the new year season is to stop pursuing our own perfection and start pursuing the one who is already perfect. Now, that was good. I thought, that's it. That's it. Because Elizabeth there is calling for a kind of well, a spiritual version of the Copernican revolution. You know, in the ancient world, Ptolemy, the Greek astronomer, thought that the earth was in the center of the cosmos. It was there in the center, and it was unmoving. The stars and the planets, they moved around the earth, which was the center of all. But then later, Copernicus, and there were others, recognized that that can't be true, and they came to understand that the sun was actually the center of the solar system, and the earth orbited the sun. Of course, Galileo, with his telescope, established that as a fact, and many, both inside and outside the church, didn't really want to hear it. They liked the idea of the earth being in the center. But as a matter of fact, the sun is in the center of the solar system. It's easy to see why people would think otherwise. I mean, from your perspective on the earth, it seems like you're still and in the center of things, but not so. It's the sun. 
So Copernicus introduces a revolution in how we see the world. And in a sense, that's what Elizabeth is saying we need to do. We need to turn from ourselves to Christ, from focusing on our own perfection to focusing on the perfect one. You might think of it as the difference between religion and grace. See, religion tends to focus us on ourselves. We become the center of things. Now, we want to be the best we can possibly be, but we're still the center of things. And it's about what we can do. Religion is Ptolemaic. But grace is something different because in grace, it is the Son of God who is the center of all. And we turn away from ourselves and the preoccupation with ourselves and the exaggerated notion of our own importance, and we focus on the one who has saved us. It's not then so much what we do as it's what he has done and what he does. That is the grace of the gospel. And so as we're talking about and thinking about resolutions for the new year, that's all good, but may I suggest you add one to whatever other resolutions you might have. How about add this one? I will this year turn from perfectionism and lean into the radical, disruptive, grace-drenched gospel of Jesus Christ, that I'll lean into this whole new universe, that I won't allow myself to turn in, but I will turn outward, and I will find grace, not an oppressive religion. That would be a resolution worth keeping. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this grace of the gospel and just how radical it is and how it changes our perspective. Now, there's no one in all the Bible that speaks with greater clarity about grace than the Apostle Paul. He often got into trouble for it. He preached a radical grace. He preached a grace-drenched gospel. There's no question about that. And one place where he makes it particularly clear is in Galatians chapter 2. And in a moment, I want to read some verses from that chapter. But first, I need to say something about a phrase that he uses three times in the verses that I'm going to, going to read. It's an interesting phrase in the Greek, and it's somewhat controversial. It's pisteos Christou in Greek. Pistaos is the genitive form of pistis, means faith. Christu is the genitive form of Christos, which is Christ, so faith, Christ. But because it's in the genitive, it can be translated two different ways. If it's what's called an objective genitive, it's translated faith in Christ. And we all know that's very important in the Christian faith, that we put our faith in him. But if it's subjective, then it's the faith of Christ, the faith that he has. In this sense, it's the faithfulness of Christ, okay? It can be translated either way. It depends on the context. Now, I typically preach from the New International Version. And if you use the New International, you will see that in the text, 
they choose for the objective genitive, faith in Christ. That's how they translate that Greek phrase. But if you look, there's a footnote that says it could be translated faithfulness of Christ. And in my opinion, I think we should move the footnote into the text. Not because any doctrine hinges on it. However you translate this Greek phrase, the doctrine of the gospel remains the same. But I think by translating it the faithfulness of Christ, it highlights Paul's thought, makes it clearer, and, and sets forth in an incredibly transformative way what grace really is and how it is that we live out the gospel. Now, that may seem like I've gone through a long, convoluted path to get to the text, but that's because I'm not going to read exactly what you have in the NIV. I'm going to read the footnote into the text. And let me read then from Galatians, rather, chapter 2. I'm going to read 15 through 16 and then skip down to 19 and finish the chapter. Paul says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by observance of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith or our trust in Christ Jesus in order that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the observance of the law. Because by the observance of the law, no one will be justified. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if justification could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now listen, everyone who believes in God wants to be accepted by God. We all want to feel that God receives us. Maybe some of what we do is unacceptable, but we want to know that we are acceptable before God, that, that we're embraced in his love. Now, how can we do that? Well, Paul says you can't get there. You can't find acceptance. He uses the word justification, but he means acceptance. He says you can't get there by observing the law. In other words, by doing all that God commands you to do. In other words, you can't get there by being faithful because, well, let's face it, we sin from cradle to grave. How in the world can we who live in such a way, find acceptance by our own faithfulness. So how can we find acceptance? How can we have the peace of knowing that God receives us and that with him we're okay? We're not perfect. He's still at work in us, but we're okay. He accepts us. We are his children. We're beloved. How can we get to that point? Paul says, we have to put our faith in the faithful one. 
It's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross and promised to save all those who call on his name. It's Jesus. See, Paul's telling us to turn from ourselves and entrust ourselves to Christ because he's faithful. It's not a question of us being faithful. It's Christ being faithful. Remember, even when we are faithless, Paul says, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, this is a radical gospel. As I said, it got Paul in trouble time and again because religious people, both inside and outside the church, thought he was making it too easy. Now, they didn't understand because it's not easy. Grace not only brings us acceptance with God, it fills us with new life and leads us to live a life that is challenging in countless ways. But it's a life that no longer includes the threat of rejection by our God. And that's why it brings peace. And that's why it brings joy. And so Paul gives us this gospel, this gospel of grace, and he calls us to it. Now, one way you can think about this is, is think of the difference between making the team and being adopted into a family. You make the team by being good. You gotta be good. If it's basketball, you gotta be really good in basketball. Then you make the team. You get adopted into a family, not because you're good, but because, because someone wanted to be your parent. Somebody saw you, loved you, and chose you. In other words, you're adopted by grace. So you make the team because you measure up, you're good. You're adopted because you're chosen in love. Now, here's the operative principle that we have to keep in mind, because most Christians would say, oh, yeah, what you just said, that's true. I understand that. Yes, but we don't always live it. What we need to understand is what's implied in all this, and what's implied is the way you get in is the way you stay in. So if you make the team because you're good, you stay on the team because you're good. Scott Drew is a wonderful Christian man, but if one of his players isn't playing well enough, they'll start on the bench, and then maybe it goes in reverse from there, right? If you're going to make the team, you have to be good. If you're going to stay on the team, you have to be good. If you're adopted into a family, how do you get in? You get in because you've been chosen out of love. It is a gracious choice. How do you stay in? <laughs> the same way you got in, by the love and grace of the one who chose, not by being good. The way you get in is the way you stay in. That's why Paul wants to make this just crystal clear. You've got two choices here. You can take the way of observing the law. In other words, you can say, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be so faithful that God will be pleased with me, that all will be well, that I'll be accepted. You can try to take that path, <laughs> and that's not going to lead where you want to get. 
or it's the path of the grace of God as God loves us and chooses us. Those are the options. So what Paul says in verse 21, really summing up the whole thing, and this is what I want to say as we're moving into the new year. He says that he does not set aside the grace of God. And folks, we must not set aside the grace of God. We need to remember what got us in, keeps us in. We need to remember it's not about us, it's about him. Our faith needs to turn from our own achievement to Christ's achievement. Not what I do, what he's done. Now, what's so wonderful about the Lord's Supper that we're sharing this morning is that it depicts this Copernican revolution. Because think about it. it it turns our thoughts to the body and blood of Christ. It turns us not to our own spiritual achievement or attainment, but instead to what he has done for us. It is true, we eat and we drink to symbolize taking in and receiving the life that Christ gives us. So his life is united with ours, but still it's his life. We're looking to him. The Lord's Supper reminds us that what, what saves us happened outside of us first. And then it comes into our lives. But it's Christ. We look to him, not to ourselves. And so as we eat and drink, that's what we do. With that in mind, I want to read the words of Christ from Matthew 26. He's with his disciples. He's, he's now in the shadow of the cross. He won't be with them much longer. And he says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, the forgiveness is the result of what he did. Not what his disciples do, not what you and I do, what he did. So when we eat and drink, we focus on what he did. And that's why he can say, this is for many it means many, not many as opposed to everyone, but many as opposed to the select few. This is not a gospel for the select few, the super saints. This is a gospel that, that's for the whole world. God embraces the whole world. He embraces the most sinful and troubled souls in the world. His arms are extended wide to take in all of us here. And what is brought is forgiveness of sins. So as we receive the elements this morning, I want to ask you to reflect on this. 
on what Christ has done. Know that your righteousness is in him. Your acceptance is in him. Put your faith in him because Christ is faithful. And leave here then with real joy and start this year with real hope. Hope in this radical, disruptive, grace-drenched gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, we are astonished by your grace. Uh, You just go beyond anything that we could have imagined. And we thank you for that. Sometimes, Father, we get wrapped up in ourselves and we see our flaws and we try so hard to correct them. And we know, we know, Lord, you are working in our lives, wanting us to become more like Christ. We know that, but we get, we get in bondage to that. We get oppressed by it. We feel oppressed by our sins and feeling that we somehow can't cast off the burden from our hearts. And then you come and you remind us that you sent a Savior and that he died on the cross for us, carrying our sins. And that he brings forgiveness through what he did. And Lord, we know we can rest. We can rest in what's been done rather than in what we have to do. Lord, thank you for the Lord's Supper, this supper that you've given us. Thank you for it. It reminds us of what you've done the great work that allows us to rest. And may you today, as we eat and drink, set hearts free. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.